continue our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you again for your mercy and your kindness. Primarily, we thank you for your grace that you have extended to us in Christ our Lord. We come this morning to confess that we are a needy people. We um, struggle with sin, although our hearts hate it because you renewed us in Christ, yet we are in the reality of our sanctification. We are this side of eternal glory, and we wrestle mightily with sin. We are a frail and weak people uh, in need of your grace moment by moment. We come to acknowledge that, and we come to pray for sweeter uh, communion with you, for deeper intimacy, for the very depths of our being to know you more fully. And we come so as a people of confession, knowing that we have been ransomed from our slavery to sin and now made slaves to Christ. And we come to praise you and thank you for such grace. And in so doing, we are molded and shaped as a people of confession knowing that we um, are prone to wander and wrestle mightily with sin. Yet our lives are a reflection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are lives of righteousness because of your transforming work in us. And our lives are our lives that reflect the nature and being of our glorious God into this world that we have been um, ransomed by Christ and that we have uh, and that our our lives are hidden in Christ and although we struggle with sin it is uh, sin that is quick quickly repented of and our hearts that are striving to walk in righteousness is righteous lives uh, interrupted by sin and that is uh, who we are and that is our hope and that is our praise and our thanksgiving to you so we thank you and we praise you and we ask that you continue to strengthen us that we might be a reflection of your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 19. And the title of this morning's message is The Riot in Ephesus. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 41. And that's a pretty sizable uh, bulk of scripture there, but... That kind of the, the riot is, is encompassed in, in these verses. And so it sort of folds together as, as a little historical narrative. So we're going to try to uh, tackle them all this morning. So I invite you first there to look with me, beginning in verse 21 of Acts 19. And we'll read through verse 41, the end of the chapter, and kind of take it all in context here. So look with me there, beginning in verse 21. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Archaea saying, after I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia, two of those minister, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way that being concerning Christianity. Spoken of as the way there in context. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was being was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. 
These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. And some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, who were friends of his, and sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from all from them all, and they shouted for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians uh, is guardian to the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are... Uh, undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. We have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the, cla- and, and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against this any, any man, the courts are in session. Proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And this uh, and this uh, connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, that's quite a historical event, and Luke goes into great detail, probably the, the, the finest detail in, on all of Acts, in describing this historical event that transpired there in Ephesus, this great riot that uh, ultimately was, was uh, quelched rather quickly. But we want to make note of it and try to understand exactly what was going on here and what was taking place and um, how we can apply these truths to our lives today. If you recall on last Lord's Day, we noted the remarkable success of Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. And it says there in verse 21, after these things, and that's really referring back to all that had transpired in relation to Paul's ministry there in Ephesus and, and the, the gospel literally 
uh, spreading out of Ephesus to all of Asia Minor and churches being planted all the way across the province uh, because of Paul's labor there, particularly in Ephesus. It was a launching pad for evangelism and the gospel spread rapidly through the region. Remember, Paul had taught and preached day and night for two years, and the result was the effect uh, that the word of God had spread throughout Ephesus and then ultimately throughout all of Asia Minor, the entire province. And so this was a bold and tireless work by Paul. He was proclaiming the gospel. That was his plan. His plan was simply to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel day and night, day and night. And as the word of God progressed and prevailed, persecution certainly followed. And so we'll take note of that this morning. In these verses, we're going to see how the opposition to the gospel developed there in Ephesus. And interestingly, the opposition came as a result of social change. That's really what sparked it. The changed lives that we see now live, being lived out there in Ephesus. We see these people that uh, were pagans now coming to Christ. And as a result of coming to Christ, lo and behold, their lives change. How about that? The way they behave publicly, the way they their, their daily business changed. Their lives had been radically transformed. And I, I like that term better. I, I'll hear people in our context, you know, God changed my life. And that there can be superficial aspects that we can change in the flesh. But uh, I like transform. That just sounds more powerful. Maybe it's just me. But we're looking at a transformation of lives that ultimately spill over into the culture. And there's a noticeable civil transformation. Life had changed for a number of people there in Ephesus, and it was mocked off by their lifestyle. And so as a result of this social change in the community, there were those who turned on the Christians. And here's why, primarily. Christianity created an economic problem in Ephesus. The automaker business was running dry. There was reason for that. There were a lot of Christians there now, and they were no longer interested in idols. Amen? How about that? Well, that brings us to the gospel effect, and I want you to note that in verses 21 through 26. And so in verses 21 and 22, we get a little background, and that's just Paul's plan. Man, Paul, Paul was many things, but he was no less a plan. He was always... He, he gathered no moss. He was always working, always planning, always thinking. So his goal is to get to Rome. Ultimately, he wants to go to Rome. But now he has an immediate issue. And that's we, we don't see it here in this context. But when we put all his writing together. The immediate issue after leaving Ephesus. He's concerned about getting some relief, some money, some financial need back to the church in Jerusalem. For the church there is impoverished and they've been through a great famine. And so he's going to go back through the province where he has already planted churches. And then he's going to turn, return to Jerusalem with the collection from those churches 
and give it to the church there in Jerusalem. So he's going to go back to Macedonia and Archaea. That's what he's talking about there, where he planted churches, the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, the church of Berea, and the church there at Corinth. All these churches that were established prior, they've now uh, agreed with Paul to gather a collection. Paul is going to go personally, gather a collection from these churches in Macedonia, then travel back to Jerusalem, deliver the relief money to that church, and then pass back through Macedonia, and his goal is going to be go all the way to Rome. That's it. That's his desire. That was his nature, right? He loved the big city. That's where he would go, where there was a big population. There was a point city. That was always his ministry uh, plan. Always hit the big city and, and plant a church there and see uh, the gospel be reproduced. See, Make disciples in the big city and see the replication of disciples be produced from there. So that's been his, his mode of operation. And now he wants to go to the capital city of the entire Roman world, Rome itself. So that's his goal. That's his plan. Ultimately, he makes it there, right? Does he make it as he intended? Not exactly. He makes it there in chains. He goes there as a prisoner, but nonetheless, he will see Rome. Uh, just not as he had planned here. But before... He can set that plan into action. Something transpires. And we see that in verse 23. About that time as Paul is prepared to make his move. Um, no small disturbance occurs concerning the way. Wow. Well, listen to Paul here. This is what he wanted to do. Romans 15 tells us this clearly. And then bam. It all Gets interrupted. This is the language in Roman 20. This is just Paul's heart here. But now I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so. And they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Now he's pumped up about this. And he's ready to go. He stayed in, in Asia Minor here as he sent uh, his two of his compadres uh, uh, on uh, elsewhere to minister before him, going on to Macedonia to try to set this up. He settled in for a little while, and he's on his way to personally get this contribution. That's his heart's desire. And bam, a disturbance occurs concerning the way. Now, he was looking to do something that's unifying to the body of Christ. We talked about that in our morning Bible study, the, 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 the unity of local churches gathered their unity, the practical love here, giving and self-sacrifice. That's all in Paul's heart. He's about to, uh, you know, endeavor into that ministry. And then everything gets flipped upside down. So verse 24 tells us there was a man named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Neopoyos is the term. He was a silversmith, a shrine maker. And what he would do was he would make little miniature statues of the goddess uh, Artemis. And these miniature statues um, would then be bought by followers of the goddess and taken to the temple and offered as an offering in the temple. So this was a lucrative business. 
And this silversmith, Demetrius, could not bring much business to the craftsmen. Now, apparently, he was kind of the head of, of a guild there, of a, smith, of, a, of, a, of a silversmith's guild. And so he was one of the higher-ups and responsible for creating work for other guys in that field and in similar fields, craft makers of similar fields. Now, they did make these idols out of lesser material. So, like, they would be uh, marble idols and the like, but there were uh, silversmith that made the most desirable, most expensive little mannequins, if you will, little miniature statues. But what would happen is they were taken to the temple. The temple priest afterwards would melt them down and use them for money. Religion is a lucrative business. That's nothing new under the sun. So lots of people were making money here. But this guy's kind of a higher up, probably head of the guild or what we would think of as a labor union today. And he is not bringing in the kind of business that he needs to. There's a problem. And so he gathers these folks together. He gathers the silversmith together and other workers of similar uh, work, similar trades. And this would be a gathering of the guild or the labor union, uh, if, if you could uh, reason in, in, that, in that way, in that terminology. It's like a labor union you're gathering together. And he says to them in verse 26, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And there's the effect of the gospel. That's what has Demetrius' attention. Now, what's his motive? Well, his motive is money. That's his motive. But he's been brought to this point to call this assembly together because there are Christians in that city that are no longer interested in purchasing these little miniature statues of Artemis because they have become followers of Jesus Christ and have put away their idols. This is a glorious reality. So before he could form opposition here and get things going, there had to be a reason. There's a reason for him to call this, this group together. And that reason is the effect of the gospel. Now, we're going to see here that Satan himself really will stir up a riot. He'll stir up these men and, this, and uh, he'll stir them up because the gospel is spreading all over Asia Minor. And it's changed the community. So one point for us up front, by way of application, the same should be true for us. Our gospel witness should affect our community. It should change our community. It should have a profound effect on our community as well. So what you're seeing here is just the overflow, the outworking of the gospel. It is a natural gospel effect that people become followers of Jesus Christ and they are transformed. And the way they live their life in their community is transformative. And it affects. So it's not a gospel that's lived here in these four walls and then put away as we walk out into the culture. That's not what you see here. You see the gospel reality exploding into the culture in such a way that now these pagans have a problem. The Christians 
have interfered with their business. And so not only the silversmith, not only these uh, craftsmen, but also the priests of the temple have been affected. The prostitutes of the temple have been affected. And certainly, again, all other artists that are, are involved with the temple. Big business has now come to a, a, a slow grind. The temple was indeed big business. But because of Christians being Christians, that's what you're seeing here. That's the gospel effect. Christians are just being Christians. Now, they've made no extreme efforts to go out of their way in some pointed degree. They are just living as Christians, and it's made a profound effect on the culture. They're simply putting away their idols because they are worshiping the one true God. And the culture has taken notes. This is what has happened. Psalm 119, verse 130. I love the simple language of this verse. This is what has transpired. The unfolding of the word gives light. You just have a bunch of Ephesians that have just been woken to spiritual life. The light has come on. This reminds me of the Reformation mantra, out of darkness, light. That's what's transpired here. The lights have come on. And now the whole city is shaken up. It's the effect of the gospel, and the same should be true for us. Well, Demetrius here in verse 25 has gathered them up, and he says to them in this gathering, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. So there he goes. He gets right to the right to the matter. Right there. There's the issue. This is hurting our bank account. This is hitting us in the wallet. Verse 26. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. That's a good way to put it, isn't it? There are no gods at all. Now, Christianity has impacted society. We, 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 we know when we look back in the last few verses on, on last Lord's Day, man, the crowd came out and they had all these books of enchantments and potions and spells, all these expensive books. And they just brought them all together out in public into the city square and burned them. They rid themselves of their pagan ways. They stopped buying idols. The gospel had taken effect in Ephesus. And as a result of Paul's preaching, now the businessmen are running low. They're having a, a supernatural imposed inflation. Now, not to get off track here, but inflation is bad. And when it's imposed by a wicked man for wicked reasons, that's bad. But a supernaturally imposed inflation is a good thing. And that's what we're seeing right here. This is a good inflation. They are losing work because people are becoming Christians. The gospel has taken effect. And the pagans knew. They knew exactly where it came from. This was a preaching of that that, that Paul, that evangelist Paul. That's the one. That's what happened. They know exactly what happened. These people heard the gospel and they and they repented and believed on Christ. It was that preaching that did it. And by the way, our Christian lives should 
affect the community, and they should affect the community in the exact same way. It's those Christians at Word of Grace preaching that gospel of Jesus Christ that have had effect in our culture. They should know exactly why our lives affect the culture. They should affect the culture, and there should be a clear reason why. Because we are carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew exactly the pagans pointed them out. Exactly. This is the problem. This is what's transpired. It's this guy. Here's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's causing us a problem. That's the issue. This preaching had a profound effect on the whole province. Not only here in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia Minor. Quick note for us. Quick note of encouragement for us. As a body of Christ. One man. Now Paul wasn't long. Okay. But we are pointing out. But we're seeing that part. So we're, what we're talking about. Paul. We're talking about one man. There were others. But Paul's point man here. Yes he had a unique calling. Yes he had a unique ministry. But, but know this. Know the connection here. And the application for us. One man. Committed to Christ. Can make a difference. One man. One woman. One Christian committed to Christ in any context can make a difference. Amen. One Christian in any context can make a difference. That is a glorious hope. That is a glorious truth. That is one you can't miss in this text. Don't miss that in this text. One Christian man, one Christian woman in any context can make a difference. God is that powerful. God is that merciful to work through his people. The spirit of the living God indwells every single blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ. And the spirit of God has the power to take any Christian in any context and make a difference for the glory of God anywhere, anytime. And we see it evidenced right here in Paul. The success of his preaching and his praying. There it is. That's the plan, right? That's the plan. He never deviated from it. It's not elaborate, but it's clearly effective. The same is true for us. The proclamation of the gospel coupled with makes a profound effect. So Christianity should transform culture. It should. And you shouldn't allow anyone or, or any uh, ivory tower professor or any politician, local or otherwise, to convince you of anything less. Christianity <coughs> should should absolutely transform a culture. Christianity should directly challenge false religion. It should. We're talking about the objective truth in a pluralistic-minded world. That's not our problem, that the world is pluralistically minded. We are carriers of the gospel truth, the objective truth of Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. We should in carrying the gospel, directly challenge all false religion. Now, do we believe in religious liberty? Yes, we do. People should be able to speak their mind and believe in this secular context exactly what they believe. But as Christians, we have the right and the calling and command from God to tell them that they are absolutely wrong. According to Almighty God, according to His Word that He has preserved for His people. They are wrong and they must repent and believe on Christ or be rightly judged and condemned into a literal eternal hell rightly by a holy God. That is the message. Christianity should have a social and political effect on the culture. Yes, it should. Now, today we hear much language, but uh, I'll just bring one to mind as by way of example. We hear the terminology social justice. And it sounds good, right? 
And we know that God is a just God. We know that God is all about justice. But just throwing out language from the culture is not okay. Christianity must shape the social landscape and the political landscape. In other words, we need to answer this notion of social justice. Now, we're a people of justice, right? Of course. Well, we need to answer this. So what does social justice mean? How is that being uh, 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 bantered about in our culture? What is at stake here? When we think about that terminology, social justice, from a woke culture, the term doesn't mean justice means a good thing. In terms of God's justice and God being a just God and God demanding justice. Justice is good. We believe in justice. We believe in a biblical justice. When you hear the terminology social justice, well, social justice is talking about collectivism. It's talking about redistribution. That's nothing to do with the justice of God. That's a man-made ideology. When the terminology speaks of a man-made ideology, then we must address it. If it's social, if it's political, so be it. It's our responsibility as Christians to address such matters because we serve a God who is just and we carry a gospel that is objectively true, no matter the cultural context. So absolutely, Christianity must affect the social order, the political order. All comes into play. Our Christianity should affect our economy. And I mean this. Now, that, that, that could take... Uh, there's a number of ways this could be played out, but I mean simply this, no less than this. When Christians live like Christian Christians, it affects how we use our money. Simply that. Now, I'm not trying to bind you or be legalistic in any way. I'm trying. There, there's lots of uh, uh, room, but we need to do this right. Certainly, as Christians, we need to affect our economy because as Christians, we're going to spend our money a certain way a way that brings honor and glory to God, and that should affect the economy of our community. And these things are true. They're undeniably true. They're true for you and your context. They're true for Christians in this generation. They're true for Christians in every generation until Christ comes back for his church. They're true, forevermore true in every context. They're true. And they will inevitably bring hostility from the culture. Just settle in. Just dig your heels in. And accept that. You living as a Christian. In your culture. Should profoundly affect your culture. And as you profoundly affect your culture. You will inevitably. Bring hostility. Upon yourselves. From the culture. It will happen to some degree. That brings me to the defense of Artemis here. So look with me there in verses 27. 34. Beginning in verse 27, he says, not only is there danger, and this is Demetrius speaking about his trade, they're speaking about the business, speaking about his wallet. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, and so he that's, that's his issue, that's his problem. His main concern is the money. But then he, he's clever in how he goes about this. Then he goes on and kind of stirs them up for their patriotism here too. So he just throws that in the mix. He's always about the money. That's the first thing on the on the list every time. But now he does throw a little patriotism in there just to fire them up. Notice how he works here. But also that the temple of that great goddess Artemis 
be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship even be dethroned from her magnificence. Well, nothing like a little patriotism to stir them up. So this is the darkness of depravity. It's the money. It's the money over the soul. And here's the great proof text, not the only one, but this profoundly answers the issue here concerning Demetrius and his compatriots. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's where it rests. That's a gospel truth. That's where it rests economically and affluence in any community. And the civil pride comes in there. The temple of Artemis and the pride and the glory of the city. And Artemis being worshipped throughout all the Mediterranean world. That's true. That's certainly true. That temple gave them their influence in the world. Their status, if you will. To lose Artemis would be to lose their reputation. It's a centerpiece of Asia Minor. All that's true. But note here, Demetrius is appealing to numbers, is he not? He's just playing the numbers game. Isn't that how it's how it works? He's just appealing to numbers. Well, we just know this. I mean, my goodness. Everyone knows all of Asia Minor is worshiping the great goddess uh, Artemis. So if everyone in Asia Minor, now of course that's hyperbole, but if everyone in Asia Minor is worshiping the, 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 the goddess uh, Artemis, then what is it, what is he, what's he implying? It must be right. Everyone's doing it. It's our tradition. It's just built into our culture. This is just who we are. This is our reputation. And so the question has to come, who cares? What does that have to do with the objective gospel truth? Nothing. It's a ploy. It's a word game. The man's worried about his money. So he appeals to the numbers. And then in verse 28. And of course, he's playing on emotion, is he not? Isn't that always the case? If it feels good, it must be right. No. That's a profound lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is the objective truth. Whether it feels right to you in your sinfulness or not. <clears throat> Whether it feels right to you in your, your fallen humanity or not, it remains objectively true and binding upon all men everywhere. It is a command of Scripture to repent. May God give us grace to carry the gospel and see men and women repent and believe on Christ. That is the only hope among fallen man. But he plays on the emotion a bit here. He appeals to the emotion and, and certainly they're stirred up. So he stirs up the mob. He stirs them to anger. It says in verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. In verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. Well, let's note this. We've seen this a lot in our current context, right? We, we can testify to this. Mobs are never organized. They're always a mass of confusion. We've seen that play out before us for a year plus now in this country. Mobs are always confused. And they rush with one accord into the theater. Now, the theater is an amphitheater there and held about over 20,000 people. So this is a big arena. 
rushing to the arena there is one of the centerpieces uh, of the city there. And in doing so, while they're along the way, now again, this is not pre-planned, it's just kind of, it's just the flow of a mob. Again, it's a reckless, unorganized, angry, hostile, violent mob. Isn't that always the case for mobs? One thing we see that's consistent about mobs, they are consistently inconsistent other than being hostile, violent, out of control, and unorganized. And so this is not pre-planned. They just catch these guys up along the way. They sweep up. They recognize them as being Christians. You know why? Because these two men were living as Christians in their culture. It was obvious, the effect of the gospel. Now, again, you know, just let the spirit of God that indwells you deal with you. I'm not trying to browbeat. This is to edify us. But here's, here's a reality for us. If our neighbors and our co-workers and whoever we uh, interact with in our daily lives do not know that we're Christians, something's wrong with us. We have to check the reality of who we really are. Because the spirit of God indwells you you are hidden in Christ, then you are transformed. And your life is about glorifying God in all aspects of life, not confined to certain compartments of life. It's just who you are. You're not able to cover it up, nor do you want to. It's just who you are. And it's obvious for an onlooking world to see. These men were known as Christians, and the mob just sweeps them up. Gaius and Aristarchus, and they were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Now, they're called up, and who knows? I mean, there could be there, there could be thousands in the theater at this point. We don't know, but certainly that's possible. And these men are caught up in this emotional mob-like fervor, and this shouting, this mantra, this chanting. And here's the reality: people just do not like to face the fact that their entire way of life and their system of thinking is wrong. And your Christian witness testifies to that reality every time you encounter your culture. And so these men just being Christian angered the mob because they were a testimony to the mob that their entire way of life, their entire thinking is wrong. It testifies to their conscience. And so they grab them up as they're shouting, as they're shouting praise to Artemis. And here's a reality. Truth does bring anger. Prepare yourself. If you're living out your Christian life in a fallen world, your Christian life will bring anger. Not always, not in every context, but don't be surprised. Prepare yourself. That is just a fact of the Christian life. It will bring anger from a fallen culture. Expect anger. Christianity is countercultural. Whatever culture, uh, cultural context you're put in, your Christianity is countercultural. Expect anger. People do not like to face the fact that their entire way of life and their entire system of thinking is wrong. And your Christian Message, your gospel proclamation demands that. Expect the anger. So the mob was filled with confusion here and they grabbed these guys up. 
and they have them in the amphitheater. Now, what about Gaius and Aristarchus, man? We don't, we don't hear anything. We don't hear, they, we don't hear them making comment. Now, the crowd just chanting. They're, they're in a frenzy. And so these men have to be thinking, you know, we're done. It's not going to be long. They're going to tear us limb to limb. And, and, and nobody can be blamed for the murders. This is a mob mentality. Right here. I mean, they could tear them limb to limb any moment. And, and the atmosphere is such that it seems that must be the case. And we don't know what they were thinking, but certainly, certainly they must have been praying and trusting God. Certainly they must have been. And so Alexander McFann says this, and, and rightly so when we think about this context in our lives and whatever God might bring our way as a Christian witness in a fallen world, it is cowardly to be influenced by the mob. Now, that should ring true to you in this context. Man, we are living in a mob mentality kind of a culture right now. The culture that you are currently living in. Now, you're not feeling the effects of it so much. You're on the outer rims of some of the cities where you see most of the heat. But it's true in your culture. It's a mob mentality. The council culture is a mob mentality. And it's violent and reckless and unorganized and inconsistent at its core. But it's real. And that's what they were facing here, a mob mentality. And it's cowardly to be influenced by the mob. And here's why. I want you to note this. And McLaren nailed it. The voice of the people is not always the voice of God. You got that? You need to hold on to that. That is just a gospel fact. The voice of the people is not always the voice of God. And you as a Christian must strive to hear the voice of God in every context that God puts you in. He puts you in that context to bring him glory. He puts you in that context to glorify himself and strengthen your faith. That's how it works. Good, bad. That's how it works. However you perceive it on the surface, in reality, every context that your God puts you into, if you're here and you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of God indwells you, then God Almighty takes every inch of your life and every context and He puts you there to bring Himself glory and to strengthen you in your worship of Him every time. Therefore, the mob mentality cannot reign over you because the people are not always the voice of God. But what about Paul? Well, they're really after Paul, and he's about to just walk into the assembly. Now, Paul, he wants to go. He sees his fellow brothers there in harm's way, and so he wants to go and try to speak to the crowd. And John Wesley noted rightly, uh, which, again, a guy that was well acquainted with mobs. Wesley was quoted as saying, look a mob in the face. Now, there's much to be said about that. We need to have discernment as Christians, but look the mob in the face. In the face. <laughs> so Paul had faith in God. He had fellowship with Christ. And therefore, he had no fear of death. That's Paul's life. That's the beautiful life of a Christian. Faith in God, fellowship with Christ produces no fear of death. Where's the sting for the Christian? 
I'm like, where's your sting? That's just an entryway into eternal glory forever in the presence of our Lord, free from the struggles of sin. Now we cherish our life. We don't want to live recklessly, but my goodness, we have no fear of death. If you're sitting there and, and, and the emotions of your flesh don't actually catch up to that every time, that, that's okay. Know that is true for the Christian and long to live and, and hold that deeply in the pit of your soul. It is a true and glorious and freeing reality for the Christian. And we see that lived, we, we see that expression with Paul. He has no fear. He's not worried about that. He's just, he knows his men are in trouble and he wants to be with them. He wants to make a plea for them. And so he has noble courage. But here we see that the disciples restrained him. So he wanted to go into the assembly there in verse 30. And the disciples would not let him go. Now, we don't know exactly why or why they tried to restrain him. But a little bit is added in verse 31. So he said, also, the Asiarchs, who were his friends, urged him to not venture into the theater. So maybe they're going to go on his behalf. Because they have authority. So Nasiarch is just basically a civil representative of Rome. So they're in uh, provinces that are under Roman rule. And again, Asia Minor, particularly Ephesus, uh, uh, excuse me, Ephesus has a freedom within Roman rule. So, so they're, 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 they belong to Rome, but they have their independence. So that's a special thing. And they don't want to mess it up. They don't want to feel the wrath of Rome. So these Asiarchs, are there as kind of uh, civil representatives of Rome. And they're there to, to restore, to keep order, uh, if needs be restore order, and keep that particular province, that particular city, under the worship of the emperor. Now, again, there's freedom to worship Artemis. Obviously, that's true. There was freedom uh, for the Jewish community to worship here. There's for some time going to be freedom for Christians to worship in, this, uh, in, in the Roman rule, the Roman realm. But with that is always a demand of a priority. And even if it's just a wink and a nod, you still got to give the priority. Caesar is Lord. Kaiser is curios. Yeah. That's where the Christians finally got in trouble. They couldn't even acknowledge that. That's nowhere in the picture. Christos. Christ. Christ is Lord. So that's just a little side note, but that's what's going on here. And so these men knew Paul. Maybe these men had even become Christian. We don't know that's a possibility. But nonetheless, they were friendly with Paul. And so they're going to come to the aid here. They plan to come to the aid. So they call Paul down, but note his courage. That is a good thing to see. Note his courage. And so the mob field continues uh, with this with this. Frenzy, continue on. Paul is held back by his friends, but there's still confusion. And it says there, in a little kind of funny note by, by Luke here as he's writing this out. Look at verse 32. So then, and all this is transpiring. So then, some of them were shouting one thing and some another. Now, isn't that a mom for you? Here we go. For the assembly was in confusion. And the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. There you go. I want to see, I would love to see an interview. Just give me a hundred people from a Black Lives Matter demonstration. 
Give me 100 people, and I want to interview them individually separately. 70% of them are not going to fully know why they're there. It's a mob mentality. These people didn't, that, that's, that's the ludicrousy of it. They didn't even know why they're there. They just got caught up in it. They just got caught up in the fence. And so some of them begin to reckon, well, in verse 33, <laughs> it's just Alexander, see? Some of the crowd concluded that it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward having uh, motioned with his hand. So Alexander is wanting to get their attention and intended to make an offense to the assembly. So some of them reason, well, the reason we're all here, we don't know, but maybe it's Alexander. So Alexander was a leader among the Jewish community there. And what he, he wants to speak to them and what he's surely attempting to do or desiring to do is separate the Jewish community from who? From Paul, that other Jew, right? Okay, look. Yeah, that, that stuff Paul's doing, that's crazy. We're with y'all. You know, just because we're Jewish, don't, you know, we gotta make, I gotta make an offense here for the Jewish community. We're not like Paul. Yes, we're Jews. And we know that y'all don't really like us because we're Jews, but we're not like, we're not like that Jew. We're not part of that thing. No, no, no. So Alexander's there to represent that community so that the crowd doesn't turn from Paul and his followers and then just make that natural sweep on into the rest of the Jewish community. And start tearing down and burning the synagogues. But the crowd doesn't even let him speak. Verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew. A single outcry arose from them all. And they shouted for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now that is an, uh, that's an insane frenzy. Is it not? Two hours. Now granted. People in that time may have not had as many cool things to do while they were writing as people maybe in our time. I mean, there's, there's no cars to overturn. There's no windows to break out. There's no spray cans to use for graffiti. So, you know, I give them a little break here. But this is absurd. Two hours. I mean, that's a demonic chant by that point. They're in a frenzy. So they shut them down. They will not listen to them. And they continue this shouting. And so it, it doesn't resemble much like what we might think of a riot or what we see in terms of rioting in our context. But I have seen something else in our context that reminds me of this. As they're shouting this man down. I mean, remember, we're all created in the image of God. We're worshipers. All of us, all of humanity, every single person on this planet is a worshiper. We're going to worship something. Now, I've seen something like this in our context. And again, I don't want to browbeat, but it's, we need to think through these things. You know where I've seen something like this? Sports. On Sundays. I've seen it on Sundays for hours. Chanting. <clears throat> Fervent chanting over and over and over. There was um, a retired pastor from this community. Uh, I won't mention the names. But he passes one of the big churches downtown on the south side. Some of you may have known him. And he was doing a eulogy of a man in his church. And he made a joke about the man. And he was presiding over this man's funeral. And he said that the man came up and told him one Sunday that uh, he would be here on Sunday night service regularly uh, when at all possible. But he was not coming on Super Bowl Sunday. 
And the pastor made a joke of that. The man's eulogy. Like that's something funny. It's shameful. Now, again, I'm not being legalistic about meeting on Sunday night. Not all churches meet on Sunday night. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm talking about is the heart of the issue. What you see here is worship. You see these, these, this crowd chanting to Artemis for two hours straight. That's worship. The same thing happens in our culture, so don't miss it. My point is, it can't be true of us. I'm talking about priorities of the Christian life. So they're wailing away. For hours they go on, chanting, chanting. And then this Jewish spokesman arises. Or excuse me, uh, this spokesman arises from, from, uh, from the city. And he's there to kind of try to calm this down because he's concerned about word getting out to Rome and there being repercussions because this, this is unruly. They could get in trouble for this kind of a mob. And again, uh, um, Alexander is just a spokesman for the Jewish community, but his life is threatened now as well. And, these, uh, the, and the Jewish community had legal rights within <clears throat> Ephesus. Paul, actually, and the Christians are had legal rights. So the crowd, the mob mentality is a bad thing in terms of causing trouble with Rome. And so in verse 35, it says, after, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Ephesus is guardian to the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven. That's how they understood that Artemis came to the city, that she fell down out of heaven. So since there is since, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of the temple or blasphemers of our goddess. So then... If Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session. The pro counsels are available. Let them bring charge against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. And they held lawful assemblies three times a month. So this was something that was natural for their culture. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot. Now they're worried about wrong. In connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it, and in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So he broke up the mob. That was a good thing. But I want you to see the appeal here. Now, that, now this is the necessity for truth. And Demetrius has made an emotional appeal, and he's played on numbers. And note here that this, this city official uh, really says he's the clerk of the city, but really it's, he's more acting more like a mayor of the city. He recognizes the danger of Rome. And so he makes his appeal to them. But note, his, his appeal is no different than Demetrius' appeal, is it? He's still making the same claims. We all know that everyone worships, worships, worships uh, uh, Artemis. We all know that. We all know that Artemis is the great goddess of Ephesus and Asia Minor and most of the, and all the rest of the world knows this. We all know it to be true. 
And these men now, again, here we got a pagan. This is a, this is a good thing to note. We got a pagan here that's being as complimenting Christians and how they've gone about their business. He doesn't charge them with any wrongdoing. Now, of course, he's opposed to the message. But the Christians have behaved themselves. They've been lawful. They've lived as good Christian citizens there. That's something to make note of. And the pagans noticed it. And he brings it up. There's no reason to act rashly with these men. Oh, they're foolish. But they're worried. This Paul will fade. Sure, he's had he's made some some he's had a little foothold here, but it'll fade. Everybody knows the truth about Artemis. We're all in the know. There's no need for this. Besides, we might get in trouble with Rome if we keep this kind of nonsense up for long. So he appeals to the numbers as well. He appeals to the motions as well. But the thing is, the number, the volume, the chanting, over and over and over. If you, if you scream out, great is Artemis for two hours straight, that doesn't make it true. That doesn't make it true. And people march in the streets of America, chanting out Black Lives Matter. And then behind that reality is a support for uh, homosexuality, and communist uh, collectivism, and a, a putting away of gender binaries. Then the sentence has been stolen and packaged for an ideology, and that's corrupt and wicked. Now, the language might be true and important and meaningful, but when you take it and you use it, or something corrupt and you chant it enough times it doesn't make it true it doesn't make it valid the same is true from all the mantra of the LGBTQ community if you chant it long enough and loud enough it's just going to be accepted as the norm that's not so for the Christian community that's not so for the Christian church just saying it loud enough and long enough does not make it true. Actually, the Bible calls homosexuality an abomination. Now, that's an Old Testament language that carries over by Jesus into the New Testament. By the way, does anyone here, Christian, know that Jesus was present in the Old Testament? Do you know that? Yes. So I've said that Jesus didn't speak about uh, homosexuality in his earthly ministry. Well, actually, he did speak about homosexuality. He was present. Second person to try you in Godhead. Author of Scripture. So he's present during the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Scripture tells us that homosexuality is abomination. So we, I saw the other day uh, uh, two young ladies, um, obviously in a, in a relationship, um, a physical relationship with one another. And one that one was wearing a shirt that said, uh, uh, love wins. That just sounds good. If you just say it long enough and say it loud enough, like here with the mob, then it must be true. Well, here's the Christian reality. That's not true. The reality on the shirt should read, should read this, abomination wins. That doesn't sound as good, does it? But that's the truth. Homosexuality is a sin. It's a sin according to God. It'll always be a sin. And although that is not popular and will cause great rage and violence and anger in our culture, that is no less true. And as long as, the, and just like the culture here chants at the Christians, 
over and over and over. They may say it over and over and say it in a fervor and say it long enough and loud enough. It still doesn't make it true. And then the mayor to come in, somebody with an official, somebody has a political position, somebody that has power and clout. And they come in and say the same thing. And it still doesn't make it true. And that reality doesn't change for you and I in this context. There's a necessity for truth. And the mayor here just chants the same thing just in other political words for the political agenda. And then it's supposed to be accepted as truth, but it's not. Now, we, he did note that the Christians were lawful, and, that, and that's important. So we give him credit there. He did dismiss the mob, so we give him credit there. But his ideology is false, and he must be called out on it. And we must do the same today. The same should be true for us in the way we live, in the way we act within a society. But when it comes to a necessity of truth, we have to take our stand. If it's a legal matter, let them take us to court. If it's a social matter, let them deal with it and whatever means is necessary under the law. That is fine. But we must understand that the gospel will provoke the world. The mob was dismissed. God was merciful. But the gospel will always provoke the world. And so here was an attempt by the city official to just dismiss the gospel. Just like Demetrius, he's just dismissing it. And in that dismissal, we must always take our stand and bring the gospel truth. We must be the conscience of the community. I want y'all to hear that. Let that sink into you. We must, as Christians, it's not um, negotiable. We must be the conscience of the community. We carry the objective truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is binding on all men in all circumstances, in all generations, in your context. While you are walking this fallen world until God calls you home, you're going to be in a context where the gospel is the objective truth of every context you're in. And you're there to glorify God. We must bring the gospel to bear. We must be the conscience of the community. We cannot accept appeasement. What's offered here by the city official in a very slick way is appeasement. We all know that's really Artemis. These Christians are not doing any harm. They've been lawful citizens. It's a little pat on the head. We know what's really true. There's no need to come, you know, to, to be destroyed. He could care less. They could have torn these men from living. He's worried about the reprisals from Rome. There's appeasement here. We cannot be appeased. We must not be appeased. We must not be swallowed up by the culture in any way, by appeasement or by fear or by a combination of both. Evangelize and bring the truth to bear. The culture. That's your command. That's your call. That's your purpose for being where God has placed you at this moment in time. And if God moves you and places you somewhere else, that will be your command and your call and your purpose in that context. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you this morning for this text. Uh, these real events that uh, that you've preserved for us in Scripture, this, um, gosh, 
I can only imagine this frightening riot this, that uh, these, these Christians of old, Paul and his um, compatriots, what they've gone through, how frightening it must have been. But yet we see your sovereign hand. We know that, um, that we too, just like Paul and the believers there in Ephesus, can trust you in all circumstances of life. We ask that you would give us boldness like these Christians in Ephesus. We ask that you would give us temperament. We ask that you would give us wisdom, gentleness, patience. We ask that uh, we would not be harsh with our language, arrogant um, in our approach, but that we would be gentle, yet bold and fervent. And that you would stand us up in Christ and you would give us the gospel proclamation that brings you honor and that we would do so consistently in our culture and that we would have a voice, that we would have a hearing, that we would indeed be the conscience of our culture and that we would not back down the chance of the mob, no matter how loud or how long, not in arrogance, but in humility for your glory. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.